Welcome to Hancock Talks, your source for insights about life insurance trends and opportunities with a focus on tactics that can help drive your sales. This podcast is for financial professional use only. It is not intended for use with the public. This material is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide advice. The opinions and views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of John Hancock. Please listen to the important disclosures at the end of this podcast. This episode was recorded on April 13th, 2013. Now, let's get started with our host today, AVP and Council Head of Advanced Markets, Carly Brooks. Hello, and welcome to Hancock Talks. I'm excited to be here today as the show's host. I'm joined today by Todd Steinberg, who focuses on sophisticated high net worth estate and income tax planning, advising clients on post-death estate and trust administration, fiduciary litigation matters, and IRS estate and gift tax examinations. Todd is a partner at Loeb & Loeb with more than 28 years of practicing law and has particular expertise in planning life insurance products. He regularly provides counsel to allied professionals in the insurance industry on sophisticated matters. Todd attended George Washington University for undergraduate and law school. Welcome to the show, Todd. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. You know, as we start to think about estate and gift tax examinations in particular, I I think it's helpful if we sort of go back to the basics. So let's start with the basics. Who's required to file a federal estate tax return? And are there any instances that you see where filing a federal estate tax return might be advisable, even if the total estate is under that lifetime exemption amount? So the trigger on the estate gift tax side really starts with the size of the gross estate, which, which has its own definition, but let's call it for the most part, the value of the assets at the moment of death. And in 2023, if that gross estate starts with initially being above 12.92 million for a single individual, and you add to it the lifetime taxable gifts, you come up with a number that if you're above that 12.92, then initially you have a filing obligation to, to actually file a return. So it could be something as simple as dying with a $10 million gross estate, previously making $3 million of taxable gifts puts you in that $13 million number. And so now you have an obligation to file. That doesn't matter even if you left your whole estate to your surviving U.S. citizen spouse or charity, you still have an obligation to file that federal estate tax return, federal form 706. There are the other times that you may want to file or should file And one could argue you at least have to prepare it, even if you don't have to file it with the federal government, is if you have either property or assets in a state that has a lower state death tax exemption that piggybacks off of some of the reporting that is done on the federal estate tax return. So by way of example, I practice in D.C., Maryland, Virginia, primarily with clients and then provide federal tax advice around the country both D.C. and Maryland have lower estate tax exemptions, and they will ask you when you file. So by way of example, in 2022, D.C. has an announced its indexed number. It's above 4.25 million. So if you have a $5 million D.C. estate, they're going to ask you, did you file a federal estate? And did you do the same kind of schedules and forms? They mirror a lot of that. So you may prepare the return even if you don't file it because it aggregates and assimilates a lot of the information. So you may you may want to file it. The final part is in that context of why you may want to file 
even if you're not obligated under the federal filing threshold or a state level, because you want to prove the income tax basis reporting, which in the last almost decade, there now is a new form that is required for that. If you have to file a federal state tax return, then you have to file this separate form. There still is a reason to file the return, the estate tax return, if there's a reason. It may also come up from a fiduciary protection issue. I spend my time representing fiduciaries around the country, and they may want to file the return so they know they start a favorable statute of limitations and some disclosures that have been done. So those are the many reasons you may want to do it. it it's not always driven by who benefits and who inherits, but that's another reason where you may use the filing of a return to clarify who gets what if there are what I'm going to call interrelated calculations because of the estate plan that was done by the decedent. Certain people may get different percentages or things like that. You may use an estate tax return, again, as a fiduciary protection. That's really, really helpful, actually, to sort of frame the conversation as you think about the reasons why you may be looking to file a federal estate tax, even if you don't have a taxable estate today. Do you also find that with the exemption threshold where it is, but we know, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, we'll see those exemptions if Congress doesn't act cut in half in in the not so distant future here. So do you foresee portability elections being made on smaller estates that may not be subject to an estate today at the first death, but may down the line have a federally taxable estate? That's a great, that's a great question. And that's also been one of the biggest confusion issues. And there's been some evolution and some favorable IRS pronouncements on that of, did you have to file just to take advantage of what's called the DeSuye, the deceased spouse's unused exemption? There are a lot of people like me that conservatively would have filed an estate tax return to document and prove the DeSuye so that the surviving spouse understood both the number and the amount and if there was never going to be a challenge to how you determined it, things like that. I think there are a lot of people that don't file that should file, particularly if the surviving spouse is going to be above the filing threshold. I almost always recommend, even if a client doesn't listen, frequently they do listen, to file that at the first spouse's death to document some of the valuations, some of the how we calculated the DeSuye. The other thing is you use your DeSuye first in the gift tax world. So you really want to make sure that you have it documented because you're going to be reporting it as you make additional gifts by the surviving spouse. So those are reasons that you would want to do it at the first death. And then you're kind of hit the nail on the head if there's not any kind of congressional action, which certainly looks highly unlikely in the current makeup of the Congress and president that we have now, not that there couldn't be a grand bargain. I don't think this Congress seems to be focused on uh, those kind of grand bargains like some of the prior ones. But in that context, even though it's indexed for inflation, if there's no change in the law before January of 2026, the exemption will go back down to the 2017 numbers indexed for inflation So right now, because we have a pretty high inflationary position, there are some people that believe we'll be back somewhere in the six or seven million dollar filing threshold level. And you're absolutely right. That's a stark difference from where we are right now, where a couple of years ago it was 11 million. Thanks to inflation, it went up to 12.92 this year. And for all intents and purposes, we could be close to 13.75 by the end of next year. Yeah, very, very helpful. And 
and I think that's one example of where inflation has actually maybe been a positive thing is as it's related to the lifetime exemption and getting the benefit of the higher inflation and pushing that exemption amount up. And DSUIA, that's got to be all of the acronyms our industry uses. That's got to be one of my one of my favorites. So, Todd, you've spent a lot of time in your career helping clients through audit, whether it's estate and gift tax audit. And so you know, I think it'd be really interesting for our listeners to hear a little bit about that process and what that looks like. So again, starting sort of with the basics, how long does the IRS have to conduct and complete an audit of an estate or gift tax return? So the, the easy answer is it starts with if you file it, right? And uh, what you should do if you meet that filing threshold, the initial estate tax return, federal estate tax return, some states are slightly different. It's due nine months after the date of death. There's an automatic six-month extension that you just apply for and you can get. So you could take as long as 15 months to actually file your return for the decedent's estate tax return. And there's some positive and negative reasons that we won't get into today of why you may delay. But for most part, you'd be surprised that sometimes it does take very long to figure out what in a complex estate both the assets are and the value of those assets at the date of death. And then there's always going to be some administration expenses that are post-death that may dramatically affect what you're doing on the return. It could be anywhere from claims against the estate, uh, liabilities, things like that. So it's not uncommon to not be able to file your federal estate tax return within the first nine months. Certainly, if you can do it, there's very few people that want to wait so, so regardless of when you file, the IRS has three years from the later of the time you file or the due date, whichever one is later. And so if people rush to file early, you would look at the due date nine months from date of death. So three years from that date would be the earliest, kind of three years and nine months. And the longest could be three years from 15 months or roughly about four years and, and three months which is obviously an incredibly long time. And that's assuming you've filed your return. For those that don't file the return, there technically isn't really a, a statute that has run. And then you just get into a deeper discussion and analysis of why or how the IRS would be auditing. Usually the easy example is to think like a married couple. If they don't file at the first death, then they may whipsaw you at the second death and go back and look at some of the things. So that's on the federal estate tax side, how long they have to audit kind of as an opening question, which is part of the reason why when we talk either later or in this conversation, some of the cases that come out on the estate tax are five, six, seven years from the transaction that was done by the decedent testator while alive before they then die and then file the return and then usually and I would say usually being before the pandemic, right? But usually you would have seen audits, which are the first level. You can call them examinations. Those usually would be initiated sometimes 12 to 18 months after the return was filed. Is probably the earliest in most situations where the IRS was on a regular routine. COVID initially caused a major backlog all across the return filing. And so they did dig out a little. The one negative of COVID, which I don't have concrete proof of this, is the IRS really moved light years forward from a technology that they now electronify the returns. It used to be there was one paper return and it would get bounced around during the process. 
now they can, even though there's a privacy and security issue, they can electronify them, which I think is going to speed up some of the examinations and audits over time. That's great. And you point that out that it can take a long time for the IRS to catch up on some of these audits. And then certainly if the case does go to litigation, then then you really run into a situation where by the time the tax court has its hands on it, it can be years after the fact. And we often see that when we're reading some of those opinions, but really helpful background. So Todd, can you walk us through what that initial audit or examination process looks like? So when you're talking through these, these cases, or these audits, let's say the executor of the estate, they get the dreaded audit notice in the mail. Are there any first steps you recommend that the family take? So things that right out of the gate that we should be looking out for mistakes to avoid at that stage? Yeah, I think, you know, one kind of offshoot of that question, right, about the timing on looking at the estate tax return before I get to that part is the time on a gift tax return. And it's kind of similar because the IRS does not just audit estate tax returns they sometimes can audit filed gift tax returns. And so if you have a filing gift tax return obligation, there are reasons to do it because of something called adequate disclosure. And then there's definitely many more people that don't report things that are called non-gifts. Like if I do a sale to an estate planning vehicle and a, a trust I created, and I think I sold it for fair market value, my clients will be advised to file a gift tax return that reports that non-gift to start a favorable statute. There are other people that do not disclose that to take advantage of the favorable three-year statute of limitations on adequate disclosing gifts. So before we get to the examination process, that could come up of a gift tax return, or it certainly could come up in an estate tax situation. And usually the same thing, the IRS takes about three years. They have three years to file under a gift tax return. If you have met adequate disclosure, there haven't been as many cases that have been litigated about what is adequate disclosure, I would argue conversation for a different time. It's a much higher bar than most professionals realize and understand. Something as simple as not putting a proper tax identification number on a gift tax return has been viewed as not adequately disclosing so that the IRS can become reasonably aware of what is being reported on the gift tax return. So that's a different issue. But but let's say you get that dreaded audit notice whether it's a gift or a state tax return, to answer your question of what's the first steps that I recommend. It's certainly to get to a professional that either helped you file the gift or a state tax return as soon as possible. You know, waiting is never a good option on anything. You'd be surprised how many people, for whatever reason, do wait. They do have time uh, requirements to file, and you want to have as much of that time to be responsive in the team that is going to analyze. So first and foremost, definitely get to the team of advisors, whether they're the ones that filed it, or if you believe, which is not true, just because you've been audited or examined, that they did something wrong. That's not true. So that you want to get to someone who's going to handle it so they have the maximum amount of time. Because I'm a big believer that in your first correspondence with the service, you have both an integrity apple that I know, Carly, you've heard me say this before. You get one bite at the integrity apple. You also, when you respond and you start asking for delays or extensions to respond, it just doesn't come off as clear and as confident as it should about what you've reported or what they're asking. And and obviously, what they're asking can be totally different on those things. The biggest mistake, in my opinion, is exactly that, hiring someone who is not prepared 
to handle the case all the way through the process where it may go. And so kind of, in my opinion, first step, biggest mistake to avoid, there's going to be a viewpoint of how to answer the IRS, which is the same when you prepare the return. And there are differences of opinion that I don't think are wrong. I just have my opinion. So I come from the school of thought that the more you give the service, the IRS, at the time of filing, the less questions they may have to pick up. We used to say typewriter, pen, email. They communicate only in writing through letters. But the less questions they have, the less likely they are. There are definitely two schools of thought. And the other school is give them less and they will not ask as many questions. So depending upon which approach you've taken in the filing, when you get asked, right, in that second example, you're going to get likely asked with a much longer list, and you're going to get asked with a much broader list. So how you answer those questions strategically is, again, the second biggest mistake. There are some people that believe they can just answer directly the questions, and there's an art form to answering them in the fullest way without being cryptic, without feeling like you're hiding something. And so initially, that's my, you know, when you get that letter, that's the first part I would always say, is don't try and do it on yourself. Maybe the person who helped you file the return is or isn't the best person to handle it. Think about who's going to be with you the whole process. And that's who you kind of should start with. It makes a lot of sense. This is not DIY planning by any means. So contact an attorney that has a lot of familiarity, you know, engage counsel like yourself that can help to navigate the audit. Really important. And I like that idea of sort of one bite at the integrity apple. And I have heard you say that before, but it's important that right out of the gate where we're working towards transparency and engaging counsel that's really familiar with the process. So the burning question, I think, for many of our listeners, though, is how do you avoid an audit from happening in the first place? So what are some of the biggest triggers that you see? Are there certain things that the IRS is looking for as red flags? Or or what are some of the things that you see examiners on the lookout for? Yeah. So again, kind of answering it in the omnibus way between gift and estate tax, because it's kind of the same. And just to go back, because I'd be remiss if I didn't say this, you know, the other big mistake that people make, whether it's an accountant who handles the initial examination and audit, or whether it's an attorney, in my opinion, is this misbelief that the examiner is your friend. They are trained very well to be garrulous like me and talkative, and you may think that they're trying to help you, but their sole job at that first level is to gather facts and information to get to their reviewer. So it already starts with a group of returns that are looked at. They make a decision of how many they're going to initially examine. And then the reviewer of the person who's contacting people like me or the accountant then has to then whittle that list down to the ones that they're really going to continue to audit and send those notices to. And, and keep following up. So again, thinking they're your friend is also a mistake that I'd be remiss if I didn't say. The only reason, a little jaded on my end, that I think lawyers are better is because there is this concept of attorney-client privilege and attorney work product, and you don't have that with the other professionals that sometimes handle exams and appeals. So similar, that's kind of the segue to the question of how do you avoid it in the first place, okay? And I think, again, the big hot buttons right now on gift and estate tax, and they evolve and they change, but the, certainly the first one has been there for 15, 20 years, is valuation. And valuation can be 
the approach to valuation, how you reported the valuation. Did you attach a fair market valuation report that is competent and professional, stands on its own when the IRS agent reviews it or seeks help from what they call engineers is what they use for valuation appraisers in the IRS world, that there is meat to the bone that helps them understand why you took your valuation position. If you make logical leaps in your report, like other people have gotten discounts, so I get a discount, or you cite the 20 cases that have accepted discounts and then say, I get it without really flushing out the explanation of why those discounts matter, then that's a red hot button. Absolutely. The size of the discount, the fair market value adjustment, you'll hear me say a lot. I don't always say valuation discounts. I start with valuation and then I say the fair market value, which takes into account various things. And then it comes to gifting, whether there's been prior gifting that's been reported, that certainly builds the estate tax file when an examiner gets it. If there are large even though they shouldn't assume everybody is committing fraud. I think if there's large transfers, including charitables during life, they wonder what you're not reporting. If there's large transfers, the size of the estate is large, and there's large charitable transfers at death, they're going to question that. The other hot button item that I think people don't fully appreciate when they do planning during life is some of the questions you have to fill out on the estate tax return Talk about retained interests, whether it's voting control, whether it's management, whether it's the power to distribute, which would be fatal, um, or decide who can enjoy. But they're looking for strings is the key word under 2036 and 2038 of the Internal Revenue Code. And sometimes you report things that you used to own and you no longer own. Life insurance, knowing the audience here, is the biggest asset that if there's life insurance on the decedent that is not reported on the return, you actually have to answer a question to explain why. All of those are hot button issues for what examiners are looking at. And I think some people try and answer those questions very quickly and succinctly, which is good. But if you leave open-ended questions and answers, then they're inevitably going to come back to you like, when did you move that asset? How did you move it? But again, transactions that you employ that you have not fully finished, whether it be a GRAT, grant or retained annuity trust, where you didn't survive the term, or a QPERT, or you did another form of installment sale transaction, and you have note receivables, all those retained interests, not using the, the negative estate tax word, are reported as an asset, and those are hot-button items that the examiners are going to look at so that if you don't give them some of the basic facts on the filing of the return, you should expect to be asked those questions at a first level IDR information document request. That's really helpful. I think when we talk about particularly valuation of assets, I know we get those questions too within our advanced markets team on whether it's life insurance policy valuation or some of the other types of designs that we see where you could take lack of marketability discounts and those sorts of, of discounts, it can be sort of this blurred line, I think, sometimes between very legitimate planning and situations that might be seen as more ripe for abuse. So it makes a lot of sense and, and very helpful. So Todd, one thing as I was preparing for our conversation today, I was doing a little bit of research and I found this 
kind of fascinating, actually. So according to the June 2020 IRS data book, the odds of an estate return being audited were around 7%. And that doesn't sound all that high, I guess. But when you actually pare down that number, for taxable estates over $10 million, that number jumps up to about 22%. So for larger estates, those are pretty high odds, higher than I actually kind of expected to see. So you're looking at, in some cases, potentially a one in five or one in four chance of an audit. And so in your experience, is it the size or the complexity of the estate, and maybe that's sort of a chicken and egg thing where larger states tend to be more complex, but do you find that it's it's sort of the size or the complexity of the estate that's driving audits on these larger estates? And are there any other red flags that you think examiners might be looking for on large estates in particular? Yeah, it's a great question. Obviously, those facts are actually pretty relevant because during COVID, while the audit numbers mathematically went down tremendously because the IRS shut down. So if you had used any more anecdotal numbers that came out, I would say you're kind of skewing it. That's the last quote unquote fair kind of assessment uh, looking retroactively back. And, and I think I'm also a little jaded and I'm hoping there aren't many IRS examiners that listen to the podcast and then search my name. But because I believe in my filing of returns, I don't see that high, but I get hired on a disproportionate ones that were done by other people. And then the audit and examination comes in and they kind of feel like now's the time, right? To hire, uh, I want to be humble in my comment, a different person. And we'll say it that way. So, so I, I don't think you're wrong in the initial, those kind of definitely the size of the estate and the complexity, you're absolutely right, is what drives. It's not so much the size, ironically, I would say it's the complexity of the assets It's the nature of the reporting and the valuations. Going back to the valuation discount, there are certain valuation adjustments that are definitely red flags. And whether the estate was small or large or became small because of these um, is kind of the IRS's approach. So I don't know that it's the dollar amount per se. They're certainly more critical, right? They're looking to raise revenue, just to be clear. Their job is compliance. Their job is both compliance and revenue raising. And so you're going to have a higher revenue raising on the larger estates than the smaller ones and then units of time and energy. But I I think certain discount positions, I could answer your red flag question. So by way of example, a fractional interest in land where you demarcate land that you and I may own into 50% interest and because someone your family member may not want to be in ownership of real estate with me, they would absolutely in the real world pay less to buy your interest to be in business with me. That kind of fractional interest discount based on the size of that discount, you are absolutely going to get questions because the IRS has been unhappy with some of those size of those discounts for years, particularly if it was created by the taxpayer. So that's what they're looking for. Did you start out with a fractional interest because you went into business together with someone else, or did you manufacture it using their words, not mine, by bifurcating the ownership? And then with respect to, I would say, tiered discounts. So in a lot of families, particularly in the real estate clients that I have and others, they own operating real estate businesses, but they want entities to control their family's part. So if you have three, four, five local families all in business together, 30, 40 partnerships, 
they want to aggregate their family interest in those 30, 40, they may have their own family business, family partnership, and then they may start doing wealth transfer planning. Well, there may be an entity level discount at the operating business for the fact that they own a minority interest, lack of control, marketability. And then there may be the family discount. Those tier discounts, which I think are completely defensible, are definitely red flags that you should be prepared to, to kind of um, defend and get questions about. So again, I kind of come full circle. I think it's definitely the complexity more than the size. The size certainly is the prize from the audit. And then I think it, if you break down the complexity, family partnerships, particularly if they're created by the testator, decedent, they want to understand, did you invest in this closely held business or did you create it for a discount? And then they aggregate lifetime gifts. The more gifts you give away, which I absolutely will get to later, should do, it certainly can increase your audit chances if you didn't disclose them or you only disclose parts of them. And that's kind of the IRS premise is they don't know what you didn't tell them. Charitable, ironically, continues to be a hot button issue because there are some really nonsensical rules in the charitable planning world that can create loss of deductions, whether it's estate, gift or income, what we call split interest trust, where you give some part to charity, some to others. And then ironically, life insurance, I'm again, a little jaded because I, I work in this space. Life insurance structures are always about who owns it and who pays for it. And we do a lot of sophisticated planning around that. Anything that is included in the estate, that is a current hot button issue, again, because they assume wrongly fraud of every taxpayer until proven otherwise. Very interesting. So you've, you've really highlighted, I think, a few scenarios there where we have to be extra careful with planning. And some of those techniques are very viable in many cases, but we need to make sure that there's the context, for example, of business owners, that legitimate business purpose, and that you're sort of crossing your T's and dotting your I's in structuring those. So thank you for sharing that. Todd, last year we saw the Inflation Reduction Act passed. And one thing that was included in that, that it has gotten a little bit of buzz, is that a whopping $80 billion was pumped into increased IRS funding that will be phased in over 10 years. And with that, we're expected to see roughly 87,000 IRS agents added to their workforce. So that's huge. How do you think that increased IRS funding is going to impact estate and gift tax audits? Are you concerned? And, and with that, do you think there is it going to be sort of more of the same that's under the spotlight or will anything else sort of come to light there? So that is a great question. Obviously, they don't ask me how to divide that between gift the state on the one branch, the income tax, the corporate business entity branches. I, I certainly think, again, going back to the premise for that, not making a political statement, although everybody says as soon as you say that, you're making a political statement, the decision to raise that funding was because there's a both a perception and maybe an accurate that I don't agree with initially for my clients, but a, a fraud or a failure to comply or a abuse. Okay. And so obviously you're kind of hit the nail on the head. They're likely to direct that funding and those additional agents to where they perceive the most abuse. And so I definitely believe the gift tax returns will be increased in the both the funding, the sophistication and training, which is, again, lagging at the IRS level, 
I find them to be wonderful to deal with, but I may be jaded because my clients are paying for more sophisticated advice and they know that. And so it's never, we're going to spend you and win the case, but there are some agents that we have a very good professional relationship with. And I, I know they have limitations and their caseloads and stuff like that. So having more agents there is absolutely going to help having more funding for visitation analysis, technological advances in audit techniques and things like that. I definitely, I'm not worried because I prepared for it, but I definitely think it's going to happen on the gift and, and then ultimately the estate tax side. Clearly, there's going to be some on the income tax side because that's the quickest way to revenue, right, is go after people who you fail are either not complying with anywhere from foreign bank account reporting to corporate reasonable compensation to de- excess deductions. So, so there's going to be a significant funding across the income tax as well. And I think that's where sometimes I get brought in on the corporate business, closely held business owner side, where they're doing wealth transfer planning, and then they get an audit on S-Corp or things like that. The three or four areas that I do think, when you ask the question about strategies or techniques that will likely come under the spotlight on the estate and gift tax side, clearly there's already been a multi-year targeted approach to IDR's information document request for micro-captives. Micro-captive world, in my opinion, has some real underlying fundamental needs, which all the way back to 9-11, we learned there are businesses that have property and casualty risks that they are not properly insured for and cannot get them in the commercial space. Think coastal Florida, Carolina, maybe even California after this where when they suffer storms, the prices on their insurance or whatever cannot be there. There are certainly also professionals that have builders and things like that that have tail coverage on liabilities. So microcaptives were created in a very good way, but it's a targeted result, that a targeted process that the IRS is going after. Ironically, because of our audience on the life insurance space, I think both life insurance, traditional life insurance that is bought inside split interest trusts that could be charitable lead trusts or gifted to charitable lead trusts is is a hot button already that's going to get more funding. We're at the tip of the iceberg there. Private placement life insurance, both domestic but particularly foreign, is definitely under the spotlight with Senator Wyden. And I think, again, the IRS will go after that. And then a concept called intergenerational split dollar has been in the crosshairs for a very long time. And they don't know how to find that without asking a lot of questions about a lot of insurance. So ironically, insurance in general is being dragged into sometimes if it's in a sophisticated structure, they don't know if it's intergenerational until they ask some questions. Those are kind of the hot buttons that I do worry that this increased revenue, increased workforce is clearly going to be more audits, examinations, and then from my level, you go up to appeals. And Todd, I think that's helpful. I think if anything, there's going to be some increased job security for you with all of this. But intergenerational split dollar, you mentioned that as something that you know, I think one of the strategies that we've we've certainly been hearing about is an interest or an uptick in interest for some of those older generations that maybe aren't insurable or they've used some of their gift exemptions. And this this idea of purchasing life insurance for younger generations to help with those legacy planning goals. 
And we've seen a lot of case law on this. And the case law on it, I think, has been very, very specific. So the Cahill, Morissette, and Levine decisions sort of are the marquee cases in the intergenerational space. But would love to just touch on this for just a minute, because I do think the IRS, to your point, is is clearly looking at these designs. I think a lot of the question marks still hinge around that issue of valuation and making sure that there's sort of this legitimate planning purpose. We've seen different outcomes. And again, the specific case facts, I think, really drive the decisions on those cases. But I know you've worked and have some experience in working in the intergenerational case designs. How do you approach those planning conversations? So how do you see this as a viable planning tool? And what are some of the words of advice or caution that you might want to share for insurance professionals that might be looking to explore that kind of planning for high net worth clients? Yeah, I, I think you can break it down into two parts, right? There, there's certainly the new discussions with clients. Like you said, professionals, I think, should be having all topics that involve life insurance as a need-based solution. For those that know me in the industry, I'm very supportive. Obviously, everybody has mortality risk. Everybody has concerns, whether it's something as simple as I did a 10-year grant because I wanted to shift wealth. And if I don't live 10 years, that failed. So you can use life insurance as a backstop to achieve that result. So, so life insurance as a solution-based is, is just paramount importance. And then obviously how you design the funding of the life insurance in the investment world, you know better than me, your industry is completely aligned in also creating a positive investment opportunity with the dollars you give the carrier. So, so I think life insurance as a solution should always be talked about. And then whenever you talk about life insurance as a solution or a need, then you can come up with a situation of who pays for it and who owns it. And so to answer that first part of should a senior generation pay for life insurance on a junior generation, the most common situation that I get into talking about intergenerational as a planning concept is dramatically different than some people in the industry. And I've been talking about this for more than a decade, is most high net worth clients, senior grandparent, grandmother, grandfather, want to take care of their children. And if their child predeceases them or dies in the future in a short period, they want to benefit the grandchildren. It's 99% of people do not benefit the son-in-law or daughter-in-law. And when I've worked on multi-generational planning and I work with the son or daughter, domestic partner, spouse, you know, as applicable, they do want to take care of the surviving spouse or, or partner, particularly if their children together are going to become infinitely wealthier. They want to make sure that their spouse or domestic partner have a certain base of insurance. So that's the need, even almost in every situation where the child wants to buy life insurance on his or her life to benefit someone in the same generation of generation two in that example, and then ultimately benefit generation three somewhere down the road. So that is a very viable structure that has nothing to do with if the senior generation advanced those premiums and is owed those premiums back, how would it be valued in their estate, which is, as you pointed out, several of the seminal cases, the three cases, how they valued it at the time of paying the premiums and putting it in the structure, how they valued it and whether it was a gift or not, and you know whether what they put in using a loan approach, even though none of the cases was, it's just easier to understand. If I lend a million dollars, I'm going to get back a million dollars plus interest. Well, then there really shouldn't be a gift. Economic benefit is an alternative to that. 
and we can talk about that in a little bit. But the idea being they were attacked on the gift tax side and pretty much across the board, the use of the regs and, and the safe harbors in there have allowed that gift tax result to be understood as not a gift. Then the valuation comes at death. What senior advanced, how would you value it? And you're absolutely right. That's a perfect example of where the size of the valuation adjustment, because the senior member was not going to be paid back for multiple years until the death of the G2 child as the insured, it lent itself to a very large valuation adjustment. And that obviously sparked a lot of the IRS controversy and, in my opinion, still will. But I think going back to your question, I think as an agent, it's your responsibility to talk about these life insurance needs and how you would solve them, even if you don't end up doing an intergenerational plan, because anytime you analyze it, you have to go through the benefits, you have to go through the negatives, which could include an examination or appeals, a likely examination or appeals, if death occurs, um, you may still end up solving the life insurance need in a more traditional route. So, so I firmly believe it's a viable topic, a viable technique. I firmly believe that there's still a lot of future audit examinations, IRS appeals, which happen after the initial level. The appeals level is the first level where the IRS can actually consider the risk of litigating with me or a client and whether the cost and the uh, dollars and the time and the effort are worth the fight. So ironically, at the audit and examination levels, they can't consider any of that. So it doesn't matter whether they hire me or someone else. They're not worried about being spent into uh, a loss. It's at appeals. So I think there's a long period and then there's going to be tax court. So so I definitely think you got to analyze the positives and negatives. I also think going into it, when you talked about the word of caution, I think people make a different mistake whenever you go into any structure, even just paying traditional life insurance premiums, right? You still have to decide someday, will I need that death benefit? And is that life insurance or the continual payment of the premium or the investment product working the way it is? You have to talk about the exit, whether that's failure to pay premiums, surrender to the carrier or anything else. It's the same thing when you go into a split dollar life insurance structure where someone pays premiums on an insurance policy that they don't own, you should talk about how you would get out of it. And that's the failure that I see is so many people are focused on the exit to achieve the tax result and not the exit to remove what may no longer be the life insurance need. And so by way of example, I started with the factual, senior wants to benefit child and grandchildren, child wants to benefit their spouse or domestic partner. Well, maybe you put someone in a structure today and five, 10, 15 years from now, the child is now independently wealthy from all the lifetime gifts. And now that life insurance is no longer needed and maybe there's a reason to exit it. So that, that's kind of a full circle of the lifespan, but clients definitely need to hear from advisors about the technique, how and what advisors say is definitely important to me. I think there are some that lead with the wrong foot, but I think if you don't talk to your ultra net high net worth clients as an advisor, tax, life insurance, or other allied, someone else is going to, and then you're in a defensive position of why you didn't bring it to them. All excellent points. With any advanced planning strategy, you really have to decide 
is the complexity worth it? What is the reason for doing the plan? I think you make a good point too to say the tax tail sort of can't wag the insurance dog and you have to be thinking about the holistic plan, the need for the insurance, and then that exit strategy is so important as we know in the intergenerational conversations. And I think as the case law shows us too, the, the facts really do matter in these cases. They're so, so fact specific. And I know that as we look at these from a carrier perspective and an underwriting perspective, it's really, really case by case and fact specific. And whether it's economic benefit regime or loan regime, we, we do want to see sort of all the details and the need for the planning. So as we wrap it up today, Todd, you know, I think this has been very helpful. And we've talked a lot about sort of following the formalities when planning, and we hear about that a lot. I think one thing we're seeing right now is that we're in this situation where we know the exemptions are going to sunset in about two and a half years if, if we don't see congressional action before then. And some of the clients that I know and conversations we've been having have been around, how do you get clients motivated to move forward with planning today? building in some of that flexibility, building in options, but doing that in a way that helps to create sort of a level of security, I would say, in terms of not drawing IRS attention inadvertently, really making sure that we're following those formalities, but still giving clients some of those choices. And there was an interesting tax court case last year, the Smaldino case, and that kind of spoke to that and at a very, very high level summarizing that. Mr. Smaldino basically had a health scare and did some rushed planning that involved things that if they had sort of been more planful in the approach, I think would have been legitimate planning, but it involved sort of death benefit transfers of LLC interests and some complicated things that happened there. So the IRS actually invoked what we call the step transaction doctrine and characterized those transfers as gifts. And so I think that case was a perfect example of the trouble that clients can get into when they rush to plan. So in that spirit, as we've been talking about that urgency of gifting, what are some of the things you're talking about right now about getting clients comfortable to move forward with flexible planning today? So that's exactly right. Your comments are so true in the world. And then you add to it, right, the market volatility that we've seen, the interest rates increasing in a very rapid way. And then you can add all the uncertainty, right, of the pandemic. So if you break the world into clients that are what we're going to call middle wealth, and it's not necessarily driven by numbers, but it, but it is because of the tax concerns that they may be exposed to somewhere in that 5, 10, all the way up to maybe 20, 25, we're going to call that middle wealth a really good community that I hope that we both can be in someday. And then there's the ultra high net worth way above that that can go all the way up into the billions. Okay, That middle wealth, unfortunately, like you said, they are very eager to do nothing. And if they don't have an allied advisory team that is all paddling together in both their recommendations, their discussions, and their ultimate conclusions on what the client should do, um, it is too easy to do nothing. And, and that's what I think a lot of people have done and will continue to do, even though we're two and a half years away from 2026, We've known the law since 2018, and th those same clients have done very little. And no matter how many times I or you or other people ring the bell, all those headwinds are going to lead to nothing. So you definitely need an, an allied advisory team that is transparent and honest and concise and clear in its communications of you can do the following steps. You should do them. But here's the flexibility in your plan to address future needs and objectives, particularly on the need side. So you could start with those people, something as early as gifting early always makes sense, particularly if you're trying to achieve socially favorable things like education, right? You could fund 529 plan accounts 
to preserve funding for education. You could help with medical and health expenses, unlimited parts of the annual exclusion, if you pay them directly, not as a reimbursement. You can also use the annual exclusion, which has gone from 10,000 to, took a long time to get to 15, and then it went to 16, and now this year it's 17,000 per person. You give 17,000 to one person over 10 years, you've moved 170, you give it to two, three, four, five, obviously you can start to not just move the underlying amount, but the appreciation on that. So gifting starting early is all important in that middle level. And then trying to focus on the assets where they may or may not need either the income or the growth appreciation. And are there sophisticated structures where you can keep a return to help with consumption, help with security needs, like an annuity type planning, but then also give away the future appreciation, whether it's installment sales, grats, other form of techniques. So in that mid-level, clearly it's flexibility to kind of take advantage of the rules they have and the needs that they should from a tax standpoint, but manage their concerns and their objectives and do it as a, a collaborative approach. Then on the high net worth, obviously they should not be as concerned about some of those financial constraints and the volatility. But frankly, in the last couple of years, we've seen whether it was SVB, whether it was the first quarter of last year with some of the private equity that never went down, hypothetically, right? I'd always tell them it could happen. And then it actually happened. So they still have volatility. But in those situations, my takeaways for you and those clients, when you plan with flexibility, I define that as adding some independence other people that make decisions. So you move away from direct control and indirect control through an independent, I think is a very important, flexible thing that clients need to hear from the advisors, how important it is in those audits, examinations and appeals and cases. And that if they're not comfortable doing it, we need to figure out ways to get them comfortable through our experience. And then the final part would be the techniques that are still available, even though they're on the president's green book and have been for multiple presidents, using grant or trust to the maximum extent possible so that you can pay the income tax on the assets and not have it treated as a gift, taking advantage of charitable planning. And then the takeaways for everyone is if you do planning, document it as many times as you can in your books, records, meetings, report it. I think clients tend to be a little penny wise with advisors where they don't want to pay people to document why they did things. They just want to pay them to do it. And they don't want to pay some allied advisors that get paid differently to ask questions, to have those questions answered so that you really can build the file when the client or testator isn't there of why they did it, what they considered. That was so important in some of the more recent cases to really document and report and prove to the IRS that the motivations were what we say they are in our defense of our clients, because you have the paper trail. So those are kind of my takeaways of hopefully over time, if you do that, you convince them to do planning, and then you meet with them annually to refine it and revise it as needed, right? It's that adage of anytime you do something once, it's hard. But by the time you do it the second time, it gets a little bit easier. It's the speed of trust and speed of understanding that this repetition can alleviate the concerns and fears that may or may not be preventing them from doing good plan. If I'm hearing you, Todd, 
we're planning with the tax laws that we have today. I say this all the time and record keeping is so important. I'm glad you mentioned that. And if, if I could summarize you, I think it's you plan early, you revisit often and you work with estate planning professionals like yourself. So with that, I think that's a great place for us to wrap up our conversation today. But Todd, I can't thank you enough for sharing all of your words of wisdom with our listeners. You clearly have a ton of expertise in this space, and we're really grateful for you taking the time to join us today. Thank you, Carly, for both the opportunity and taking the time to talk. I think from working with you and other allied advisors like you, it's really important to get clients from where they are today to where they need and should be. And so I appreciate the opportunity and using this platform. Thank you, Todd. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Hancock Talks. For more resources on today's topic and access to more information about how to grow your insurance business, visit jhsaleshub.com. And don't forget to download and subscribe to the show to get new episodes as they become available. Thanks so much for listening. This information is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a recommendation of any particular product or is providing advice. Clients should consult with their own independent professionals regarding his or her own circumstances. The opinions and views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of John Hancock. These opinions are subject to change and there is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Comments on taxation are based on John Hancock's understanding of current tax law, which is subject to change. No legal, tax, or accounting advice can be given by John Hancock, its agents, employees, or licensed agents. Prospective purchasers should consult their tax professional for details. Trust should always be drafted by an attorney familiar with such matters in order to take into account income and estate tax laws, including the generation skipping tax. Failure to do so could result in adverse tax treatment of trust proceeds. There can be costs associated with drafting a trust. Life insurance products are issued by John Hancock Life Insurance Company, USA, Boston, Mass, 02116, not licensed in New York, and John Hancock Life Insurance Company of New York, Valhalla, New York, 10595. This recorded material may have been recorded to support the promotion or marketing of the topics addressed in this recorded material. Individuals interested in the topics discussed should consult with independent professionals to examine legal, tax, accounting, or financial aspects of these topics. MLINY 0411 dash one.